This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Welcome back to Mobile Suit Breakdown. This is episode 1.20, The Fate of a Soldier, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan, and in the middle of a podcast, Tom forgot the podcast. <laughs> and I'm Nina, anime fan, and warning you again that these are sad episodes. Brace yourselves. Last week, we officially launched our Patreon over at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. And the response from you has already been incredible. So we have a lot to celebrate this week and a lot of thank yous. The first one is a big, broad thank you to all of our listeners, all of our subscribers, and all of our followers. Thanks to you, in this past week, we reached our 10,000th podcast listen and our 100th followers on both Twitter and Instagram. We've had so many people reaching out to tell us how much they're enjoying the podcast, and we're both really feeling all the love. We've also had tons of new listeners discover the pod, and that can only be thanks to all of you sharing us with your friends. So thanks go out to each and every single one of you. And special thanks this week go out to all of our 27 amazing patrons. You all joined us on Patreon as soon as you found out that you could, and we are so, so grateful to all of you. Our new patrons this week are Grant W, Ron S. II, Kyle A, Lucas T, Noah B, Tyler H, Jeffrey H, Steve A, Alex C, Junior K, Ryan P, Michael R, Storm, Michael B, Jason S, Manic, Thomas W, Jimmy, Gerardo R, Caleb F, Michael F, Charlie G. As Tom said, we are so grateful for your support of the podcast. We've loved chatting with you on the patron discord, and we're excited to make more great content for you all. We're also grateful to two distinct Chris B's for emailing us, as well as from book to board, Super Mr. Awesome, Kapo7117, and a hedge knight who messaged us on Instagram, and to Ryutsuki325, Rubenine, Kanescup06, and Neo Atari, who all wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. As you know, we're currently running a giveaway contest to promote the podcast. We have some great prizes, including copies of First Gundam, Gunpla, and this week we are pleased to announce that we will be giving away some sweet Gundam art prints, and we'll post pictures of those on our social media so you all can check them out. To be eligible to win, all you need to do is any of the following sometime before February 1st. Like Mobile Suit Breakdown's page on Facebook, follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter, follow at Gundam Podcast on Instagram, support us on Patreon, or write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and email a copy of that review to us so that we know you wrote it. If you do more than one of those things, then you'll be entered into the contest more than once. And we'll be announcing more amazing prizes throughout January, so keep listening. We have a correction this week, which we are actually very excited about because we learned something new. Patron Steve pointed out to us that we were wrong about the numbering conventions for Japanese military planes. We say this is our mistake, but it's really my mistake. In our previous episode, I said that the naming convention of naming military hardware after the year in which it was introduced was not a Japanese convention, that it was a particularly Western style. 
And it turns out I was wrong about that. Some of you may be aware that the Japanese year numbering system is based on how long the current emperor has been emperor. So it's the, the year of their rule. So initially, their typing system in the 1920s or so was based on that same system. An aircraft ordered for production in 1921 was called the Type 10 because it was the 10th year of the Emperor Taisho's reign. At the end of 1926, when the Taisho Emperor died, the numbering system was reset because it was now in the reign of the Showa Emperor. Where things get confusing is this. <laughs> Tom saw planes numbered something like 89, and it was certainly not the 89th year of anyone's reign, and it was not the 89th year in any calendar numbering system that we knew of. Where we got tripped up is that in 1929, the Japanese adopted a new system based on the imperial year. So not the regnal year of the current emperor, but based on the number of years that the imperial line <laughs> has run Japan. The Japanese imperial family is the oldest continuously reigning monarchy. That's even if you don't include their mythical origins, and when you do, they get into multiple thousands of years on the throne. As a result, they don't actually name things type 2699, they name them after just the last two digits, which is how you end up with things like type 99. For the 2599th year. <laughs> of the Japanese Empire. Things get a little bit more confusing in 1940. Because it was the 2600th year, and so the last two digits would have been zeros. In 1943, they abandoned the old designation system because it was considered too revealing as to the nature of the aircraft, and they switched to naming planes for popular kind of poetical things like kyofu for strong wind. <laughs> they would use the designator Kai as a indication that something had been changed. So a slightly changed model of a plane would be called the something Kai, which is how they ended up with a plane called the Shiden Kai. No way. Yes way. Ha. Was it a snarky plane? <laughs> Well, when it was flying, because of the particular character of its fuselage, it made a kind of <laughs> sound. <laughs> and now, back to Gundam. Last week, Amuro met Rambaral and Lady Hamon in the desert, in a strange encounter that seemed to make a deep impression on all involved. Later, he returned from his protracted sulk to find the white base under attack. After narrowly defeating and then destroying Rambo's goof, Amuro returns to his friends, only to be locked away in the brig. And now, episodes 20 and 21, Shito Waito Beisu and Gekito wa Nikushimi Fukaku, or in English, episodes 19 and 20, Hand-to-Hand -hand Combat and Sorrow and Hatred. Shito means something like fight to the death, so you could translate Shito Waito Beisu as Mortal Combat White Base. Gekito wa Nikushimi Fukaku means something like the struggle is filled with hatred. We're doing something a little different. We have never tackled two episodes of the show in one episode of the podcast before, but there's a very good reason to do this, and that is because these two episodes share both a story arc, they form a cohesive story together, but they also shift the attention away from our usual emotional center, our center of attention, Amaro, to someone else. The real emotional center and driver of the story, at least the internal one, mm -hmm. <laughs> aside from the external events in these two episodes is Ryu Jose. Yeah, and Ryu has been more than a secondary character, more than a background character, but up until now, he has never quite emerged as one of the central characters in the same way that Bright and Sela and Amuro and even occasionally Kai all have done. 
And in many ways, Ryu gets to hold this position for two reasons. One, Ryu is career military, like Bright. He's here because he chose, and he chose understanding the commitments he was making. The other piece, however, is that Ryu has experience. In our research this week, we will be talking about shipboarding actions in World War II, conflict resolution in Japanese culture, and Fudo Myo, the Buddhist wisdom king. But first, the recap. The crew of the White Base is on standby, awaiting further orders and Odessa Day. While Bright, Mirai, and Sela try to relax on the bridge, Amuro is in his cell, refusing to eat. When Ryu asks Amuro what he plans to do, Amuro says that if they won't let him pilot the Gundam, he might just leave. Furious, Ryu punches Amuro as hard as he can and tells him to stop sulking, but Amuro remains defiant. On the bridge, Hayato asks Bright what he plans to do about Amuro. While Ryu and Bright think Amuro will come around soon, the rest of the crew are skeptical. Rambaral prepares for another assault on the White Base. He receives word from Dozel that three Dom mobile suits are being sent to help his mission, but McVeigh intercepts the message and decides this is the perfect moment to remove Rambaral, who knows too much. McVeigh prevents the Dom mobile suits from reaching them, and Rambaral decides they should change the plan to his old specialty, guerrilla tactics. Ryu is woken abruptly by a call from Sela. Hayato Kai and several other crew members have taken a dune buggy and left. As he goes to retrieve them, Mirai wonders if she and Bright have been paying too much attention to Amuro. Ryu catches up to this new group of deserters, but they tell him their plan is to find some other Federation force to join. Kai questions why they're needed on the White Base when Bright has Amuro. As they argue, the gallop flies by. Ryu rushes to get back to the white base, yelling over his shoulder that they will just have to consult their consciences. Ultimately, they decide to return. As Rambaral's force approaches, Amuro finally eats and puts his uniform back on. Suddenly, the white base can see incoming Gallop and Kui, and it's everyone to battle stations. Bright sends Sela to the Gundam, and Frabo retrieves Amuro and sends him to the portside guns. From there, Amuro is able to provide covering fire for Sela, and she destroys an enemy Zaku, her first kill with the Gundam. Ral's crew use jetpacks to leave the Kui and fly up to board the White Base, and the White Base crew scramble to hold them off. Bloody battle rages, gunfire streaking back and forth, and grenades filling the halls with smoke. The Gundam is powerless to help in this kind of fight, and Sailor returns to base, switching places with Amuro, who Bright has ordered to clear part of the bridge, even if he must damage the White Base to do it. Rounding a corner, Rambaral runs straight into Sela, who he immediately recognizes as a Lady Artesia. He tells her that he served under her father, Lord Zeon Dekun, and she suddenly remembers a younger Rambaral playing with her when she was small. As they stand there, stunned, Ryu rounds a corner. He and Rambaral both fire, wounding each other. Rambaral runs to the next room, but finds himself cornered. He orders his men to retreat and uses the radio to call Hammond, asking her to destroy the white base with the gallop and telling her that he found Artesia. It is unclear how much of his message made it through. Seeing that he is surrounded, Rambaral congratulates the White Base crew. You've all fought splendidly, but now you'll see the fate of a soldier. He pulls the pin from a grenade and jumps out into the open air, dying in the grenade explosion. Hammond tries to bring the gallop into attack, but Amuro throws the beam javelin directly through it, and Hammond just barely manages to eject before the gallop explodes. The battle at an end, a wounded Ryu is loaded into a stretcher and carefully carried inside. As the next episode opens, Hammond is preparing to avenge Rambaral, no matter the cost. McVeigh is not cooperating and has provided just one old Zaku and four Magella tops. 
She gathers the remnants of Rambaral's crew, explaining that she must try to complete his last mission, but that it is unlikely anyone who goes will return. Despite the odds stacked against them, they all agree to join her. The White Base is doing what repairs they can, but they are short of people, parts, and weapons. There are still tensions and bad feeling in the crew over Bright's handling of Amuro. Ryu rests in the med bay, but when Haro and Frabo visit, Haro can tell that Ryu is in a bad way. Amuro has been returned to the brig, and Ryu wonders whether it is Amuro or Bright being stubborn now. Ryu staggers through the white base, talking to Bright and Amuro, and trying to get them to understand each other and make some kind of peace. When Hammond's force arrives and begins the attack, it is Ryu who convinces Sela, and Sela who convinces Bright to let Amuro out in the Gundam. As the battle rages, the white base begins to pull away, and we see the graves of those who died in the last battle. Kika is saddened that they must leave the fallen crew, who she has come to see as brothers. The Xeon cargo ship, filled with explosives, tries to ram into the side of the white base. Amuro wrestles it back, but soon comes under attack by the Zaku and the Magella tops. He manages to throw the Zaku at one of the Magella, but Hammond and another comes up from behind him and begins firing on the Gundam at point-blank range. Ryu, in a core fighter, comes to the rescue, but the core fighter has no ammunition, and he does the only thing he can think of to save them. He crashes the core fighter directly into Hammond's Magella top. The crash site burns like a funeral pyre, and the shocked and distraught White Base crew stand in the desert, weeping and blaming themselves for the death of their friend. Sela dries her tears and reminds them that the only way to make themselves and their loved ones safe is to destroy Xeon. Tom actually has a really good kind of thematic framework for looking at the character actions, specifically the white base characters across these two episodes. I was actually thinking about it some more since oh, the last time you we like talked about different. this. Okay. No, I do like it. I think it applies to Xeon too. Okay. So I think this is a comprehensive thematic framework for these two episodes. And it's introduced by the narration in the first of these two episodes, where the narrator says that the white base has managed to survive this long because everyone pulled together. Because of teamwork, they've accomplished things that they shouldn't have been able to do. But now that is in peril. Selfishness has broken apart their teamwork. And I think this episode really shows a struggle between selfishness and teamwork. And it shows the ways that that selfishness is undermining the teamwork. And I think ultimately, that is what kills Ryu. Yeah, Ryu himself even says after he's tried to go talk Amuro around, and then as he's on his way to go talk the Hayatokai, Maximilian, whatever, Howard, <laughs> Howard, Howard I believe was the fourth group around, he even says out loud to himself, I can't believe how selfish everyone is or something like that. Yeah. What struck me about those two incidents in the first of these two episodes is that in both cases, people's behavior comes down to, I am not getting what I want out of this situation. Therefore, I'm checking out. Hayato gets to say this the most explicitly when Ryu tracks him down. Hayato says, I don't have my reason for fighting for the white base anymore. Though we also have Amuro basically saying when confronted with the fact that they might not let him pilot the Gundam anymore, like, oh, maybe I'll just leave then. Right. Throughout these two episodes, Ryu is the voice of teamwork and sacrifice for the good of the group. And they never, either of these groups, seem to think about what their leaving means for everyone else <laughs> mm -hmm. or, or any sense of responsibility or loyalty to the rest of the group. Mm -hmm. Mind you, when the chips are down, everybody comes around. <laughs> you know, once there's an actual fight on, I'm 
Amuro can't wait to help the white base, including what to me felt like him passing a test a little bit when Fra comes to get him and he's like, the Gundam? And she's like, no, Sela has the Gundam, but we need you to man the port side turret. And he's like, okay. And he just goes. Yeah. He's just so eager to go out and do fighting stuff. Well, and I even felt it when he is like yelling instructions to Sela while she's in the Gundam. You know, he wants it to go well. If he can't be in the Gundam, he wants whoever is in the Gundam to fight their best. And he wants to help them. Yeah, that's that feeling of teamwork. Amuro has come around on that really sharply from where he was in the beginning when he's he's basically sulking in his quarters. He is, once again, update the trackers, told to eat, refuses. Gets punched. Yep. Not a little punch. Not a slap of authority. When I think of the phrase, he hauled off and punched someone, Mm -hmm. this is what I think of. Like, like a big old wind up and a throw your whole body. Right. Ryu puts his whole weight behind it and this and is Ryu a big is a dude. dude. <laughs> Amuro goes flying across the room and smacks into the bulkhead on the other side of his bed. And then he snarks Ryu because that's the sort of mood he's in. I also love the coming around moment for the other group because Ryu is in a hurry to get back to the fight. He says, you'll just have to examine your conscience and decide. I don't have time to try to convince you. Well, he After he's already been smacking people around. Yeah, he did deck Kai as well. Kai is actually the first one who says like oh so are we going back then and Hayato asks the other two like is that okay there's already a group sense coming back Mm -hmm. like we four we're going to act collectively we can't decide just me and Kai to go back but then even though Kai is clearly the first one to suggest that they are going back he has to be talked into the car (laughs) he's like waiting for Hayato to be like Kai come on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just a very Kai move. Oh, it's very Kai. But it's such a little thing, and yet it's so illustrative. When they do talk him back into the car, Kai even sort of says, oh, looks like it's going to rain. The weather's getting bad. Guess I'll go back to the white base. <laughs> just on the Hayato note, I don't think at any point in this show so far has Hayato had one good word to say about Amuro. There have been a couple of times when it's clear that there's some tension between the two of them. There have been a couple of times when Hayato has sort of mildly scolded Amuro. I can't remember any time when Hayato has expressed any kind of affection to Amuro. Even Kai has had good things to say about Amuro. Well, Hayato hasn't liked Amuro since they were neighbors on side seven. Mm -hmm. The first indication we have that they know each other is Fra scolding Hayato. Why didn't you go check and make sure that he'd left his house during the evacuation order? And he's sort of like, "Eh, eh." the only reason we're being attacked is because of Amuro's dad. Yeah. So clearly that's a long-standing resentment. And Hayato left Side 7 or started to leave Side 7 with a family, and now it's just him. There's a lot, I think, going on under the surface for Hayato. Of all the characters, he seems the one who has the most sort of like the mask goes up and whatever's going on behind the mask, you can't see it. Yeah. To sort of come back to the arc of the episodes, Mm -hmm. it feels like Ryu is very much Bright's right hand. He's very much backing up Bright and helping him put out these sort of personnel fires, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which Bright has shown he's not good at dealing with. However, by the time we get to the next episode, Ryu is starting to wonder, is the problem Amuro or is the problem both of them? Is Mm -hmm. is Bright being a bit stubborn at this point? Perhaps motivated by the previous episode when what the crew perceived as his lenient treatment treatment of Amuro resulted in four members of the crew abandoning the ship. Mm-hmm. Perhaps Bright is a little bit sensitive about how he treats Amuro and feels like he has to continue punishing Amuro for the good of the ship as a whole. Well, and Ryu does two things throughout this episode that I find really wonderful. <laughs> uh, and all of them, while we could argue about this, I'm pretty sure that Ryu 
is mortally injured in that fight with Rambaral, and regardless of the actions he takes later in the episode, he would have died anyway. I don't think any amount of recuperation lying down would have helped him. And I think that's the point of that scene with him and Frau and Haro at the very beginning of the second of these two episodes, where Ryu says he's fine, and Haro says, no, you're not. (laughs) And Ryu says, oh, he's very well built and honest. So anyway, (laughs) he's dragging his, you know, dying body all over the white base. And the two things he does is, one, he acts directly as a go-between between Bright and Amuro, which is a very Japanese thing to do, though I'm sure it happens in other cultures also. But in Japan, it's very common uh, if there's a dispute between two people, it's not considered passive-aggressive to have some mutual friend kind of try to sort it out. And he finds out from Bright that Bright just doesn't feel like he can trust Amuro. And not that Amuro is sneaky, but that Amuro is almost like a wild animal. like A un- wild tiger. Unpredictable in that way. Great if you can direct it somewhere right. and it can help you, but you just cannot depend on it to do what you need when you need it, and you can't depend on it not to turn on you. Amuro in attack mode. Right, and that there's no malice in it and there's no scheming in it, almost that it feels like Amuro's nature. And then when he goes to check on Amuro, first he establishes, has Amuro had that necessary mental adjustment? Uh, and he checks this by like, oh, how do you feel that Bright put you back in the brig after that last fight? And Amuro seems totally calm. Yeah. He says, I understand. I think there's room to debate Amuro's psychology here. But yeah, he does absolutely seem to have come around in this episode after a couple of couple of days in the brig. And the combat. And then to Amuro, he lets Amuro know. He says, Bright is comparing you to a wild tiger. Isn't that isn't that odd? Haha. Ha. I'm gonna sit here against this bulkhead door because I can't move. <laughs> Just so that Amuro can begin to understand where Bright is coming from. Mm-hmm. So he's setting up that conversation that he hopes will happen. He's creating those connections. He's a nexus point for a lot of people throughout these two episodes. And that's sort of what I mean about him being the voice of teamwork. It's like there are all of these distinct strings, like the the patchwork quilt of the white base is coming apart and he's grabbing onto all of the pieces and he's trying to pull them all together and knot them back together again and they keep slipping out of his fingers. The other thing that he does is he leverages his personal relationships and connections to everybody on the base to make what he thinks needs to happen happen, (laughs) which is to say when Fra and Sela are walking him back to the med bay, he tells Sela, Fra's got me. Go get Amuro out. I will answer for it. He leverages his position on the ship to get, is it Job John? To switch with him out of of the core fighter. Mm -hmm. Leverages all these relationships that he has to do what needs doing. And this culminates in what I thought was one of the most interesting and also horribly sad endings of an episode we've had so far. Uh, Ryu's death. Which it occurred to both of us in the aftermath directly parallels Rambaral's death in that previous episode. In both cases, you have career soldiers <laughs> basically looking around them and telling the group, I am going to do what has to be done. Yeah. I am a soldier and this is what soldiers do. And Ramba, his last words to the white base, he explicitly tells them, I'm going to show you how soldiers die. And he kills himself to avoid capture, essentially. Yeah. Because he doesn't have to. They had him cornered and I don't think they'd have killed him. They'd have wanted to keep him. And Ryu knows that he's dying and knows that they're in a dire situation. 
And in perhaps one of the most explicit parallels to kamikaze fighters that we've had so far, and we've had some pretty explicit ones, but when he takes the core fighter, something about it is not working properly. They don't see what he's going to do with it. And he's like, it doesn't matter. I'll think of something. It can still be useful. And he crashes it directly into the Hammond's Magella. Yeah, he does. And I think there's an additional parallel between Ryu and Ramba because it's Ryu who wounds Ramba and it's Ramba who wounds Ryu. Right. They shoot each other in Ryu's case mortally and we I mean Rambaral could also have been mortally wounded we're not positive right had he not been wounded maybe he would have been able to escape or something my read on that scene is that the two of them kill each other and it takes a little while to take effect but by shooting each other each of them inflicts what is effectively a mortal blow on the other and for all of the sadness of that last scene which I mean I was very moved by the fact that everyone cries there's no sense of somebody's being strong and not crying like everyone everyone loved Ryu and everyone is distraught that he's gone and everyone blames themselves which is not what Ryu would have wanted no I I don't think Ryu would have blamed any of them and there may be something in there suggesting the fruitlessness of this kind of self-sacrifice yes it's very noble but we end with a scene in which everyone is very visually separated Mm -hmm. everyone is standing apart from each other everyone is blaming themselves and we end with Sela providing the sort of emotional core of this episode, this episode which again both in the English and Japanese titles refers to hatred as being an intrinsic part of the struggle. Sayla says there's nothing we can do except we have to get revenge on Zeon. We have to destroy Zeon. It is perhaps ironic or perhaps was intended. In his death Ryu accomplishes what he's been trying to do for these two episodes. He brings everybody back together with unified purpose. (laughs) I'm not sure he does. Just because of the visual thing or? Yeah, I think because of the visual thing. It leaves me uncertain of whether or not Ryu has accomplished that. The other thing is when Rambaral is in his last moments, his final scene in that sub bridge, he's been wounded and he contacts Haman and he says the mission has failed. And he tells his two soldiers who are with him, you guys escape, I'll stay. And he's making this noble self-sacrifice to save their lives because that's what Rambaral has always done for his soldiers. But it fails completely. They both get killed a second later and he blows himself up to no effect. I don't see how you can argue that Ryu had no effect because if Ryu hadn't taken out Hammond's Magella, she would have shot up the Gundam Mm -hmm. and the gallop full of explosives would have hit the white base. Sure. I'm not suggesting that Ryu didn't save the crew. He absolutely did. I just don't know that his death will have unified the crew in the way that he wanted. I mean, perhaps not in the way that he wanted. I think (laughs) that's a bit of a stretch. I do think it unified the crew for now. At the end of the first of these two episodes, after Ryu has been wounded. The final scene of the first episode is Ryu being carried in a stretcher, I think by Kai and Hayato with With Sela Sela and Bright right next to them. Yeah. And Bright is saying quietly now, carry him carefully, gently. At that point, what did you think Ryu's condition was? Mortally wounded. (laughs) I thought he was... (laughs) Because I really, seeing that, I felt like it was very uncertain whether he was alive or dead at that point. Well, and the way they fade to black while zooming away, so they, that group gets smaller and smaller and the scene fades to black. And they're walking in this starkly barren hallway. It looks like a ramp, I thought. It's also, I think, impossibly wide to actually be in the white base. Yeah. (laughs) It feels like a mausoleum that they're walking through. That was my read on it. And so the closest visual parallel I could think of in Gundam is when Garma's body is being carried in his funeral procession. And closing out that episode, even though I, because I've watched this before, knew that Ryu was still alive, it really felt at that point like he was dead already. 
to be fair, it is also coming on the heels of, I think, the deadliest episode that we'd had so far. Yeah. Most of the combat is not happening in mobile suits, so we don't have that sense of detachment. It also means more people are involved because this is more hand-to-hand. This is more shooting down hallways of the white base Mm -hmm. as Rambaral's men attempt to storm and take the white base guerrilla combat style. Right. Which is an old specialty of his, and they do seem quite skilled at it. We see numerous people get shot. There is blood splatter. There are sprays of blood as people get shot. I felt like in a couple of scenes, it was a little reminiscent of Star Wars in that you have like laser pew pew going down these sort of bright white hallways. Tom felt much more like sort of World War II movies of people storming buildings. Yeah, and or trench like fighting. That. This brought up an interesting question, which is were there any boarding actions during World War II where a fight like this would have actually taken place on a naval ship? And we're going to have to look that one up. Well, and I and I had made a joke, <laughs> half a joke, uh, as Ron Morales' men are first approaching and all the white race crew are scrambling to get to where they can try to fend them off. And I'm like, repel borders, which is the sort of thing you would have said on a, on a sailing vessel, like a big <laughs> sailing yeah. ship when the pirates come for you. <laughs> but it is, it is literally true in this case. Right. We see a lot of use of grenades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see some other new tech, the quiz, which basically look like, is it qui? Yeah. yeah. The quiz. Qui? Qui. It's probably, if it's Japanese, it's just qui, whether it's one or several. Basically seem like a heavily armored mobile artillery because there's a, a big gun. Most of it appears to be shielding so that you can put a group of men behind it, mm-hmm. get them closer, and then they jump off to it. To attack. Like an armored personnel carrier. This combat also has one of the first times that the white base has been fighting an enemy and that enemy is suddenly confronted with the fact that they're fighting a bunch of kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you can't tell in a mobile suit, you can't tell who you're fighting when they're in a core fighter. You might think there's one or two teens among a crew. That's different than an entire crew of teens and young people. Mm -hmm. And when Rambaral figures this out, he seems entirely unfazed. A little disappointed in himself. He's like, oh, well, that... You know, everybody's low on troops, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But at the end, when he's been defeated, he says, I can't believe that Ramba Rao got bested by a crew of kids half my age. I mean, he does say that they fought splendidly. Ripa. Yeah. Clamp, however, seems distinctly uncomfortable. And Ramba has known since his encounter in the desert with Amaro that he's fighting a teenager. But there's a big difference between fighting a teenager and fighting a three-year-old. So when <laughs> Clamp jets up onto the outside of the bridge and he's going to blow a hole through the glass and Kika is there screaming obscenities at him and trying to kick at him through the glass and he's like what is that what is a kid doing here i'm just like get away from the glass or you'll get hurt We do see two things from Rambaral. He has seemed like a very no-nonsense, very straightforward, but honorable man in terms of combat. But we see two moments where something shifts in him. One, Fra holding a sidearm comes up on him and he immediately knocks it out of her hand. And was like, if you were armed, I would have to kill you. Go hide. Because he knows she's not a fighter. Yeah. And there's no need or particular desire to kill this little girl. And then when he sees Sela and he he says to Hammond, you know, I forgot to fight. In the middle of a battle, Rambo Rall forgot to fight. But he is just so poleaxed yeah. <laughs> that he, he forgets. And there's no time for explanations, right? There's Ryu comes around a corner and shoots him. 
And I think we'll come back to Ramba and Sela when we're talking about Xeon specifically. Mm -hmm. But that brings up something I wanted to talk about in the fight, which is how this fight connects to that overall theme of teamwork and selfishness. Because in the battle, no one succeeds by themselves. There are repeated instances where someone is in trouble and they get out of it because somebody else comes around the corner and saves them. Yeah. Amuro oh, gets disarmed by a Xeon mm -hmm. soldier who he tackles and he's trying to fight and the guy's about to like crack Amuro in the back of the head with his rifle and Bright comes around the corner and shoots the Xeon. Right. And then you have Sela getting saved by Ryu. And I think this happens a couple of other times to other people on the white base. It's somebody else who saves you. I'm going to wait yeah. for that to stop. <laughs> okay. Well, and in the fight, Sela is in the battle because she and Amuro switch. The mm. two of them working together, neither one of them putting their ego as I want to be the Gundam pilot. I want to do the thing. Well, and he helps her get that first kill. The other thing I wanted to talk about, it's related to the battle, but again, back to that theme of teamwork, Fra and Mirai. Because in the battle, Fra is carrying a gun, mm -hmm. something we haven't really seen her do. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the episode, Mirai is mending the orphan's clothes. That's Fra stuff. I did notice. I was like, oh, that's... Well, and she's the one who pulls Kika out of the way of the window. She's kind of directing people from the bridge. Mm -hmm. Like, take those sidearms and go to that entrance. Go to this other place. Like, Yeah. The people who I think we have reason to believe are the most together. Mm -hmm. The people who are the real like emotional and moral core of the crew right now mm -hmm. are doing each other's jobs. They're mm -hmm. helping out. They're doing whatever needs doing. Even if it's not the thing for which they are best suited or which they most closely identify their own sense of self with. When the battle in Shito White Base starts, the orphans run onto the bridge. Katz takes one of the bridge stations. He's the oldest of the orphans and he's helping out. When we were initially talking about this, as we were watching the episode, you referred to this as an episode full of honorable mentions. That's right. Because they talk about the two operators, whose names are Oscar and Marker, apparently. And we see them almost every episode, mm -hmm. right? They're sitting there in the middle of the bridge, watching the monitors. <laughs> And in this episode, Brett is like, yeah, we had to give them a rest. And then there's Howard and um, Maximilian. Is the mm, other yeah, name? Maximilian. Who we haven't met, but they get named and they show up and clearly they're Hayato's friends. And Job John gets some pretty important scenes. Yeah. He plays a big role in defending the white base. And then he's the driver for the lower part of the gun tank in the next episode. Well, and one of the chief mourners when mm -hmm. they bury Ryu. And then during the fighting, we see a lot of unnamed, I called them blue shirts because they're all wearing the blue uniforms, defending the white face and dying in the process. We know that some of these people died because in the next episode, when the white base has to move because it's under attack, Kika is at a window and, and cries out because they'll have to leave the graves of, she calls them all Oni-san-tachi, the big brothers, the big brothers. Yeah. They have to leave them behind. Yeah, which is, I, I got choked up at this point. I teared up a little bit. It's a really beautifully composed shot uh, and it is deeply Dad. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, it also makes me really angry at the translators for this one because this is actually something Kika has done for a few episodes now. She's referred to older members of the crew as older brother or big sister. And the English translation has never reflected this. Maybe because it would be confusing because they're not actually her brothers or whatever. But I know it's more of a thing in Japan to refer to older people with whom you're familiar, with whom you're friendly, very close as like big brother, even if they're not literally mm -hmm. your big brother. But the fact that Kika does that is both very emotionally resonant. It shows that this is her family now. Mm -hmm. Frau is kind of like her mom, kind of like her big sister, and everybody in the crew is her sibling. And the decision not to do that is fine, except here in this 
this scene where that gives it so much more emotional power, but also because it shows that those unnamed, never before seen white based characters were as important to Kika as Amaro and Hayato and Bright and everybody else on the white base. Yeah. <laughs> and the show clearly wants us to think this because in these episodes, we have Hayato saying through his actions, you're all paying too much attention to Amaro. And then I think it's Mirai. Oh, yeah. Mirai wonders to Bright after Ryu has left. She says, are we paying too much attention to Amaro? And that I thought felt very pointed at the audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, are we the audience paying too much attention to this kid? And then all of the honorable mentions, the blue shirts, those graves, Kika calling them Onisan, all of that together is a very strong message to the audience that we have been paying too much attention to Amaro. I mean, in uh, in war, there are very rarely main characters. <laughs> One of the things that kept popping into my head in the dynamics of this episode, so I kept thinking of the trope of like a sports team where one person is really, really good, like way better than everyone else, uh-huh. but it's still a team. They can't play every position. They can't do everything themselves and how it can create a lot of resentment among the rest of the team, the amount of attention this one, you know, outstanding player gets, because no matter how outstanding that person is, they need the rest of the team Mm -hmm. if they want to compete. Yeah. (laughs) Which I couldn't even tell you where this idea popped into my head from. I mean, I can off the top of my head name half a dozen players in the real world who fit that mold. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neymar. So anyway, that was the parallel that popped into my head when I thought about the resentment and the dynamics of both the people in command and their attention and where their attention goes and even where the audience's attention goes. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think most war heroes, especially from World War II, would tell you that they weren't war heroes, that is. Right. They did what they felt they needed to do in the moment. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking a few episodes back about Audie Murphy and how he just wanted to protect his friends. The first time one of the white base crew members was shot down during that battle. It was shocking. I made a, I made a note of it because I was like, wow. And then I stopped making notes because it just kept happening. <laughs> I noticed it because it's one where they animated him really well. Like you see his face, you see his hair, you see emotion, and you see him get hit and you see blood. Yeah. And I wasn't sure how explicit they were going to be. And so the, that told me like, okay, <laughs> that's what's happening. We get another woman whose love is dead seeking revenge. Yeah. Well, and Haman's revenge attack really follows on the heels of this. It's practically one battle because the white base is still damaged, still limping along after Rambaral's attack. They haven't been able to repair anything. We get a glimpse of Hayato's still burning resentment. He's remarking that they're they're low on ammo, they're low on equipment, they can't fix anything. <laughs> and Bright is like, oh, quit your whining. We have to rely on our wits and ingenuity. And he's like, ugh, why don't you just rely on Amaro like you always do? <laughs> So yeah, there's that. I just want to touch briefly on the Gundam's combination scene. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which con- <laughs> contains two really amazing things for me. First is Amuro's conversation with Omer, who is launching the Gundam parts. And Omer says, I've never done this before. I mean, I've read the manual. And Amuro's like, that's how we do it on the white base. <laughs> no, no, no one has done anything. <laughs> We just read the manual and we do our best and we muddle along. And then as Amaro's launching, he's like, geez, and this guy is supposed to be the professional soldier. (laughs) I thought that was a great little encapsulation of like the white base attitude. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
The other thing about it is in episode 20, it opens with the Gundam transformation scene, the same one that we've seen in every episode since Kukuru's Doan's Island, where they're practicing transformation with the gun parry. And this time the narrator uses that to talk about teamwork or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Just shoehorn it in. Yeah, yeah. Got to get it in there somehow. But episode 21, Sorrow and Hatred, doesn't. And I thought that was interesting. And then they do the transformation during the battle. And that for me really confirmed my theory that they have an instruction from the sponsors that the transformation has to appear in every episode. And if they do a real transformation in the episode itself, then they don't need to put it at the beginning in the introduction. So it'll be interesting to see if it returns to the introduction next episode. Before the break, we talked about the white base side of things, and now we're going to switch over and talk mostly about Xeon. And when I opened up this discussion, I said I think that the theme of selfishness versus teamwork is also present on the Xeon side, and Nina gave me a look like you had better be prepared to back that up. And I am. I don't remember giving you a look about that. I remember giving you a look about different things, (laughs) but go on. How am I supposed to keep track of all the looks you give me? (laughs) Fair. We sit across the table from each other while we do this, so it feels a little more conversational. Occasionally, we give each other the eye, like, what on earth are you (laughs) talking about? So the big conflict for Xeon in both of these episodes comes down to Rambaral and then Haman trying to accomplish what they view as their final mission, even at the cost of their own lives, without adequate support. Rambaral's final mission? It ends up being his final mission. Well, yeah, but he doesn't set out thinking that it will be. He does say something to the effect of, tell Machiavelli that Rambaral will accomplish this mission, whatever the cost, or something like that. It's clear that he puts the mission above his own life. That's so that's true. that's the central story element for the Xeon side. So all of the drama of these episodes, Rambaral and Haman trying desperately to accomplish their missions, even though they don't have the resources to do it, and being willing to put their lives on the line, and ultimately being willing to die to accomplish them. All of that happens in the shadow of the fact that Macveh has diverted the resources that would have made it easy for them to do this, for his own selfish aims. He says outright, they know too much. <laughs> right. And he says, these mines will be essential for Kaecilia when she rules Zeon. No one can know about them, not even Lord Giran. He He's actively sabotaging Rambaral. Really, he's sending Rambaral to his death. Mm -hmm. Or at least to ignominious failure. See, I think the line about he knows too much already suggests Machiavelli knows Rambaral is going to die. You're right. And he states to his underling, you know what to do. Right. Uh, Which makes it sound like there's going to be an assassination attempt. And it's not quite that overt, but it is sabotage. You're right. They divert the mobile suits, the doms that Rambaral was supposed to receive. Which I was really excited. I was like, oh, are we going to get to see a new mobile suit? <laughs> no. But no. Tragically, no. Given how successful Rambaral is in this mission and how powerful the last new mobile suit upgrade was and how much trouble the white base had dealing just with the goof, a set of three doms under these circumstances, Rambaral probably would have had no trouble destroying the white base. But like Shar and Garma, Makveh undermines Rambaral at a crucial moment. The white base is the beneficiary and Rambaral, who throughout these episodes and since he was introduced, has really represented teamwork for Xeon in the same way that Ryu has on the white base. And he dies because of it. Based on all of our previous experiences of McVeigh, I don't think this is really explicit anywhere, but just based on the way he is in the (laughs) show, I think he wants Kaecilia to succeed because that improves his own condition. 
I think it's Agreed. it's not I, that he thinks she would be the best leader for Xeon and he's willing to do anything to support her and make sure she comes out ahead. It's, he is part of her faction. If she does well, he does well. He does seem committed to her, but you're right. I don't think it's because he thinks she would be the best leader for Xeon. It's because she would be the best leader for Makave. So even though he has a very small presence in these episodes, his shadow lingers over all of them. And the deaths of Rambaral, Hamon, and Rambaral's entire team of expert elite Xeon soldiers in a war that at this point is typified by resource shortages, personnel shortages. I mean, Rambaral says this when they've attacked the white base and his soldiers point out that they're fighting a bunch of teenagers. Rambaral says, well, we have also had personnel problems. And so you have this squad of experienced, dedicated elite soldiers under one of Zeon's best commanders, and they get wiped out in these two episodes. And not only does McVeigh deny them mobile suits at the beginning, when Haman is preparing her last attack to get revenge, to get Kataki for Rambaral's death. And if you haven't listened to it, we talked about Kataki back in episode 11, when Iselina followed a very similar character arc. But when Haman is preparing her own revenge mission, what is it that McVeigh sends her? A worn out old Zaku <laughs> yep. with no weaponry, and four tank turrets. I want to talk about Hamon a bit because there's a way of looking at her behavior in this that casts it as selfish, right? She doesn't seem to really care about these repercussions for Zeon. She's grieving Rambaral's death. She wants a vengeance. She's going to risk all of them and everything they have to get it and to try to complete Rambaral's mission. The thing that makes it very clear that it's not is she gives all of the men a choice. And it's such a beautiful scene. For me, the most moving part, and I, I realized it was happening just before it started happening, and I felt deeply moved. She goes through and she greets every one of these men by name and thanks them and, you know, we're counting on you, do your best. But like, she knows these men. Yeah. They know her. She knows every single one of them and they all like know and respect each other. There was a brief moment as she's preparing to go out and do this, to give her stirring speech to the men. And we don't see a whole lot of stirring speeches in this show. It's not that kind of show. Uh, and she gives... <laughs> one of the best ones. There's a brief moment where I was like, is this fan service? She comes out in a towel, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's, it doesn't feel all that racy. You know what that felt like to me? What? Ritual purification. Oh, before going into battle. Cause it's right before she suits up. Yeah. And it's a battle where she knows she's going to die. Mm -hmm. Where she basically intends to. Right. And it ties back into our earlier discussion of how this second episode has a lot to say about suicide attacks. There was this attitude of, if we don't have enough resources, if we don't have the resources to be strategic, we have to put every everything fully committed and be willing to spend everything, lose everything. All of us die. But if we have that level of commitment, maybe we will succeed. Mm -hmm. And she suits up and gets everybody ready to go. Yeah. The other very interesting thing that happens with her this episode is we get occasional flashes of where her screen goes pink and she seems to be remembering things. And she remembers Amaro in the bar. And Amaro has the same thing happen to him. His screen goes pink and he remembers her and Rambaral. And he remembers you know, various things that have happened. And both of them with this pink sort of color palette over their memory. And throughout the episode, both of them have moments of feeling the other person wondering, is that boy piloting that mobile suit? Is that boy on that ship? Is Haman out there? Well, and even communicating to each other. In the first of these two episodes, when Haman is bringing the gallop, Amaro yells to her, even though there's no way she could possibly hear him, like, no, stop. And this is right before he throws the beam javelin and destroys the gallop and she manages to eject just in time. Mm -hmm. I found myself wondering 
And obviously we have no proof yet, but whether or not this is meant to hint that, and we've had a few hints that Amuro might be an Esper, is, or was, I should say, Haman also an Esper. Is there some psychic link between them that we're meant to be starting to maybe get a sense of because of these weird flashbacks they're both having? As far as I know, this is not canon. There's no accepted position on this. It's not a common theory, but I think that it is. I think there's a lot of evidence in this episode, and I'm prepared to lay some of that out now. <laughs> Please do. So first, and this goes back a couple of episodes, but when they meet in that bar, there's an immediate connection between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And Ramba notices this. Ramba says, oh, that's the sort of boy you take an interest in or something like that. Mm -hmm. Suggesting that this is something Haman has done in the past. Haman has a knack for noticing people who are significant. And there's callbacks to this connection, especially right at the end before Haman dies, when she's fighting with the Gundam, when she's fighting with Amuro, and he does something incredible. And she says, of course, the boy that I noticed would be incredible like that. Mm -hmm. Second, there is the color identification, mm -hmm. that feeling of some kind of metatextual link between the two of them created there. There is the feeling of attempting to communicate across impossible distances. Mm -hmm. But I think the two strongest indicators of this, one, early in the episode, Ryu brings up that Amuro might be an Esper. Mm -hmm. Ryu reminds Amuro what Matilda said and reminds the audience. And that's our hint that something is happening related to this in this episode. Right. The second thing, when Rambaral's team is coming to attack the white base in Shito White Base, Amuro senses it's happening before they arrive because he's sitting in his bunk. He's been moping, refusing to eat until they leave to make the attack. And we get all these shots. Oh, of him preparing. Zion leaving with the gallop. Amuro eating. Zion getting closer. Amuro putting on his uniform. The Zaku going to flank and the Kui tanks going around the other side. Amuro shadowboxing in his room. There's no possible way that he could have known that. And it's the timing is too precise. You're right. I didn't put that together somehow. I mean, it's a very dense episode. There's a lot happening, but I thought they had some, they had had some warning or something. But frankly, no. even if, even if the bridge knew that people were coming, even if the bridge had picked up on something, nobody had told Amaro. And we know the bridge hadn't picked up on it because they're surprised moments later when Zeon actually arrives. Mm -hmm. Amaro knew, and we know he knew this wasn't just something he was going to do anyway, because it's purposeful and it's very different from what he was doing before. He felt them coming. And I don't think he just felt them coming. I think he felt Hamon coming. And as she is going into the battle in the gallop, I don't know if you remember this, she thinks to herself and her internal dialogue is a conversation with Rambaral. She says, oh, if that boy is out there in that mobile suit, I hope we're okay. Like, yeah. I hope I do all right. We have up to this point, very rarely seen people successfully escape the destructions of their machines. Rambaral managed it. Hamon manages it in this episode. Right. Did she have some warning. Did she feel, oh, better eject now? Yeah. The idea that someone would react quickly enough seeing a projectile flying at them is pretty unreal. Like, while it's obviously animated slower for effect, if someone threw an actual spear or javelin at you, by the time it's left their hand, it's probably too late for you to eject a machine. So the show is still calling them espers, but I think we have the clearest up to this point evidence that there is something psychic going on with Amaro, some kind of special connection. An interesting thought that just popped into my head. Mm -hmm. We know Amaro was born on Earth, but we also know that he left very young. It looked like maybe he was four when he left and he hasn't been back. 
we know Hammond is a space noid because she has that whole conversation with Ramboral about the lightning, mm -hmm. which she hasn't seen before, but Ramboral has told her about. So we know she is totally unfamiliar with Earth. Mm -hmm. So obviously three things make a pattern, but so <laughs> far our two likely espers have spent the bulk of their life in space. How interesting. I wonder if we'll come back to that in the future. Gee, I wonder. <laughs> Yes. Sailor, sailor, yes. sailor. No, no special connection whatsoever to what we were just talking about with space noids and whatnot, but moving on to Sela. It might seem a little odd that we are including Sela in our discussion of Xeon, but well, there you are. Because in this episode, we <laughs> learn that Sela is the daughter of someone named Xeon Dekun who Rambaral's father used to serve and we actually get a little, and we actually get a little scene where we see a flashback to younger Rambaral playing with child-sized Child. yeah. artesia. Yes. So we have this moment. He's clearly very shocked to find her alive. One of the first things I thought of was, oh, so the dynasty is named for her dad. How did the zombies come to power then? I'm just going to sip my tea. <laughs> We get a sense from this that had he not died, Rambaral could have been a potential ally for her. But how complicated that would have been and what that would have meant precisely in terms of being on the Xeon side or the Federation side is unclear. And we don't end up having to worry about it because Rambaral dies at the end of the episode. Here's a theory. Before Rambaral dies, he does two things. He tells his men to evacuate and he calls Hamon and he tries to tell Hamon about Artesia. Mm -hmm. And then he kills himself. I think Rambaral Rambaral might have been afraid that if he was taken captive and interrogated, the Federation might have learned that Sela is Artesia. He might have killed himself in part to protect her. Possibly. Although, I suppose, why tell Hammond then? Because he trusts Hammond, absolutely. And maybe Hammond could also help Sela, help Artesia. Possibly. We get to see Sela go out in the Gundam again. There's a very interesting translational issue there. <laughs> when she tells Bright that she's launching, the English translation says, thank you, Sela. But in Japanese, he says, tsuman na, which is sort of like, oh, sorry, like, oh, I've been, like, oh, this is regrettable that yeah. you're having to do this. She launches much more successfully than before, although they do reuse her, I'm launching animation <laughs> with her hair flying around. She's fighting much more successfully. We see Amuro shouting some advice to her from where he is positioned on the port side guns. She gets her first kill with the Gundam which is a headshot to Izaku. What struck me is her reaction to that first kill being completely different to Amuro's reaction to his first kill. Amuro is horrified the first time he takes out Izaku. He's sort of in like battle madness. Right. Sela is exultant. She yeah. is so happy that she destroyed that Zaku and whoever was piloting it. I guess this is what you get when you send someone out into battle who is too strong, too strong to feel horror. Well, like so many things about her that have come up through the episodes, it makes you wonder what her childhood was. We yes. had some indication that she might already be experienced in soldierly things. And I think this is another check mark next to that point. Mm -hmm. She does not have to do the mental gymnastics <laughs> to be okay with what's happening. Something that I thought is being hinted at in these couple of episodes. I don't know if Tom agrees with me or not. I feel as if they are setting up a little bit of a power struggle <laughs> between Sela and Bright. 
And that's mainly for two reasons. The first one is when she goes to get Amuro out of the brig so that Amuro can pilot the Gundam. And she's doing this because Ryu has suggested it to her and Ryu's like, I'll answer for it, just go. But when she calls Bright to be like, hey, give me the codes, I'm letting him out, I'll answer for it. Bright is like, well, I guess I'd better <laughs> just give you the codes because you're going to do it whether I veto or not. So he feels undermined. Bright feels like people do not respect his authority. <laughs> When he says that again, when Amuro launches in the core fighter, Sayla asks, is it okay if we go out in the core fighter instead of the Gundam? Because they can't launch the Gundam at that point. And Bright just says, it'll happen whatever I do. So sure. So Bright feels as if he has no grip on the crew. We've seen Sayla take charge a bit in certain situations. And so we know she feels very comfortable doing mm -hmm. that. And then at the end, at Ryu's funeral pyre. So that's what it looks like at the crash site. Mm -hmm. Everyone is distraught and blaming themselves and feeling guilty and sad. And they kind of need someone to rein it in, right? Because obviously they need to grieve for their friend, but they're still in the middle of a war zone and they still have to, to go fight. But it's not Bright who pulls everyone together. It's Sayla. Sayla is the one who says, you know, we've grieved, but now all we can do is defeat Zeon. The only way to prevent more of our friends dying. The the only way to get out of danger is to defeat Zeon. That stirring, like, all we can do is band together and keep fighting the fight and end the fight. That's Sayla and not Bright. And this connects to Bright's uncertainty earlier about how to deal with Amuro, as well as something he says in the first episode, which I'm not certain yet of its full significance, but I do think it connects to this, which is that when Amuro was away, after Amuro had kind of sort of deserted a little bit, <laughs> Bright felt very uneasy as a commander. He felt this sense of dread that he couldn't quite explain. And maybe that's because he felt like it was his fault Amuro left. Maybe that's because he felt like they were undefended. Who knows? But definitely Bright's confidence, his ability to be a commander has been undermined in the last few episodes. I think it very likely that he also realized with the departure of the Gundam how dependent they've become on this one source of protection for the base and it scares him. That, like, mm -hmm. that he can't protect the base by himself. That as the commander, he can not, he can't keep them safe. Yeah. And he does feel responsible to everyone. You know, the others might not have that sense of responsibility to each other, but he definitely does. I think Ryu really understands that it's not just that everyone is relying on Amuro, but everyone is relying on everyone. When he goes after Kai and Hayato and Maximilian and Howard, and he says, we need you. Are you guys just going to go and abandon Bright? Mm -hmm. You know, and Ryu knows that they need Amuro, but they also need everybody else. And losing Ryu, perhaps, will help the rest of the white base understand that they need everybody. And isn't, everyone is Kika's Anisan. Isn't Ryu the one who says to Frabo, you can pull a trigger? Yeah, when he puts her on the machine gun. Yeah, he's like, go, go sit yourself at one of the guns. We need every hand. And in true big brother fashion, wear a helmet so you don't ruin your hearing. <laughs> the other thing that gets highlighted for us by Sayla's grief at the end of this episode and her little speech about how they need to defeat Zeon is she does want to destroy Zeon. She didn't just wind up here by happenstance because she happened to be on the side and now she happens to be in the white base crew and she's waiting for her moment to jump ship. She wants Zeon destroyed, presumably because of what Zeon did to her family, which, you know, yeah, up until this moment, I have occasionally wondered mm -hmm. whether or not she was biding her time for some reason and was eventually going to switch sides. So we did get a, a hint of her real feelings when Kozen tried to break her out of the brig and she just sort of smiles at him and says, I think you misunderstand. Yes. 
true. Uh, though I think the, the firmest proof that we've had so far is her little speech here. Yeah. Although in the first of these two episodes when Rambaral dies, that is the most emotional we've seen Sela get short of when she realized that her brother was still alive. <laughs> there is another theme running through these episodes, one that really has been running through Gundam as a whole, and it's the ultimate pointlessness and tragedy of this cycle of revenge. Garma died attacking the white face. Rambaral came here to avenge him. And his goal was to accomplish this thing and secure the futures of his men and Haman. And now he's dead and all of his men are dead. And the men of his who survived went to attack the white base in order to get revenge for Rambaral. Along with the love of his life. And now they're all dead and she's dead. And in the process, Ryu died. And so now the white base wants to get revenge on Zeon. And this cycle is just going to keep going. And no good is going to come out of it. And no one is going to get what they want. Before I talk about Ryu's role as an intermediary in the ongoing conflict between Bright and Amuro, I should explain how things got so bad, because there are cultural nuances on top of the reasons we've already discussed. In Japanese culture, tatemae is your public face, and your behavior is supposed to be appropriate to your position and your role. Honne is your personal opinions and feelings. Being able to keep your honne private and to fulfill your role and duties, even when there's a conflict between what those roles and duties require of you and your honne, your true feelings, is a sign of maturity. People often put aside their preferences, needs, or feelings to avoid causing trouble for others. And so in Gundam, this keeps coming up because people keep saying, aren't you an adult? Or you need to grow up. You need to put your personal feelings into a box. And you need to stuff that box deep down inside. It's not that you can never express those feelings. It's not that those things are completely hidden all the time forever. In the situations where everyone is actively engaged in their role, they need to be actively engaged in their role. They can't be caught up in their own feelings. And we know, because of little tidbits from various people, None of them want to be doing what they're doing. Nobody is happy with this situation. Nobody is thrilled here and so excited. <laughs> but they put aside those feelings and they put aside many of their personal needs so that they do not cause trouble for the crew as a whole. Amuro seems distinctly unconcerned <laughs> about what trouble he might <laughs> cause. Even, he even seems to relish the idea that his behavior might cause trouble for them. Self-control and endurance are highly valued, and when people do express anger, it is often in a very humble or subdued way, unless they are of much higher social status than those they're interacting with. We see a few people display discontent, right? We see Hayato express some discontent, we see Kai do it, but in both cases, in Hayato's case, it tends to be sort of like half-mumbled to himself in this very non-confrontational way which I think to an American audience can feel passive aggressive, but to a Japanese audience would have just felt like him airing those feelings in the most appropriate way available to him. And remember, whenever Kai expresses discontent, it's always couched in a joke. It's always couched in some kind of self-deprecating language where he talks about, oh, I'm just a coward or, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just Kai, which makes it more okay for him to say those things. <laughs> 
because he's downplaying his own importance. Obviously, everyone still gets irritated with him because he's still acting out. But uh, the way he does that is self-deprecating and humble in a way that is marginally more acceptable. <laughs> and well, and as Kai has taken a more active role in the business of the ship, people have a lot more tolerance for his snark. People get a lot less annoyed by him when he's taking care of his responsibilities. He's fulfilling his role. Sayla, I think, also. Mm. Sayla likes to express her discontent. Well, and Sayla's case parallels Amaro's in some ways in that we now know that Sayla at least grew up a very important person. And so she's probably used to being one of the most important people in the room, which means that she would have had much more liberty to air and express her feelings in her life in that very open way and direct way than a lot of other people would have. She's not as used to being lower down on the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, and Amro, what his behavior more or less indicates is that he thinks he's the most important person in the crew. <laughs> uh, that he gets to act this way because he is more important than everyone else. Because only the highest status person is allowed to act out like this. Is that the idea? Uh, sort of, although they, they wouldn't, right? Because they have a responsibility to everyone else. It's both, he's acting both like the most important person, but also very immaturely <laughs> at the same time. And I think part of the tension with Hayato and the rest of the crew is this feeling of, you know, we are behaving correctly and you are behaving incorrectly. We all want to do what you're doing, but we are not because we are... Acting like grown-ups. Mm-hmm. It's interesting what you said about how the person who has the highest status and therefore has the the right to express their anger openly is still not supposed to. And all of these incidents where Bright has been frustrated by somebody and has snapped at them. Mm -hmm. And for instance, when he snaps at the orphans when they're making too much noise on the bridge and Mirai sort of gently says, oh, don't don't do that. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that like, yes, you can, but you shouldn't. Well, and there's and there's an acceptable range, right? Like. While it's fine for Bright to express his feelings in a more blunt way, uh, to snap at people, to get angry. Because of his higher status. Because of his status among the crew. The way in which he respects his position is he would never do what Amaro does. He would never sulk and basically abandon his post to make a point to them about how important he is. <laughs> and we know Bright takes that responsibility very seriously. It would never occur to him to do it. So typically, conflict within groups is managed or avoided entirely through respect for hierarchy and stigma or penalties for group members who cause problems. While Amuro has occasionally behaved respectfully toward Bright, it feels like he does not really respect the hierarchy. No. He occasionally uh, respects that Bright knows things that he doesn't, sometimes, maybe, when he's in a good mood. Amuro doesn't seem to have much respect for the crew as a corporate unit. He has these individual relationships with people. While there has been a little stigma for him based on his behavior, we mostly only see that through Hayato, Kai, through these other crew members. And those scenes uh, in the last couple of episodes when Amuro was still on the run, when we got cuts of crew members discussing him. Right. Although in the case of what I'm describing, these would be things that would happen you know, before he left slash once he comes back. What are the punishments, social or more formal, that 
he experiences because of his behavior. Well, and those punishments have the effect of restoring him to the group and restoring the group to harmony. Like he has to be punished. Right. Or else the damage he's done to their teamwork, which is how they express it in these episodes, doesn't stop. Exactly. (laughs) But there's very little before that, right? To a certain degree, there are times that he causes problems in previous episodes, uh, but there are very few to no repercussions for him. So people also put a lot of energy in Japan into cultivating personal relationships within their in-group, right? You see this a lot in gift giving, in doing favors for people. It creates this web of mutual obligation. And that sounds kind of mercenary, but it's really not. (laughs) Obviously, they don't have a lot of opportunity to give gifts aboard the white base, but they do try to be constantly helping each other out, looking after each other. I mean, Mirai mending the orphan's clothes for Fra. Well, and I would have thought, you know, Amuro helping to fix the running water faucet in one of the... Uh... Right before he deserts, I think. I think that's, <laughs> that's Amuro deserts. But yeah, that this history of doing things for each other and looking after each other creates a more tight-knit group. But there's no sense that Amuro acknowledges necessarily what's been done for him before he leaves. Uh, And in fact, when things have been done for him, he seems to resent it. He seems to almost resent being pulled into this web of obligation of the group. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of the episode where they give him extra rations. Yeah. I mean, every time Fraubo goes out of her way to bring him food... And he just ignores it, which maybe gives some extra significance to that scene in these episodes when he eats. When he finally eats. He's Uh, accepting the gift. When these systems break down, indirect methods of communication, such as using an intermediary, allow the parties involved in a conflict to save face. So face can be kind of a hard concept to explain, but I think we can say pretty confidently that Bright has lost face because of Amuro's actions. It makes him look like a bad leader. Amuro has also lost face because everybody is talking trash about him. He he has lost standing in the group. Part of the reason that using an intermediary is important is because in a confrontation, a direct confrontation between two people, there's this sense that one of them has to win. And so one of them has to lose. Right. And so one of them might gain face through that process, but one of them will invariably lose it. And this creates ongoing bad blood. Like you might think it would be good for the person higher in the hierarchy to win this situation, that that would be better for them. But because it damages the harmony of the group going forward, it's not ideal. Like For instance, if there was a conflict between an officer and a pilot, and the pilot was refusing to go out, and the officer insisted that the pilot go out, and the pilot still refused, and so the officer struck the pilot, and the pilot then agreed to go out. That sort of conflict, while it would reassert the officer's position in control and maybe cause them to gain face, could create some resentment in the pilot that would cause problems down the line. Uh, yeah. That's, like, hypothetically. Yeah, yeah, that's... I'm not saying that's happened, but... That's also why the indirectness is so important. Because think for a moment about how Ryu approaches the two of them. He doesn't try to drag them together. He's not sort of angrily confronting either of them with, you need to fix this, you've really messed up, and it's not confrontational. He takes a very circuitous route to getting them both to think about how to patch their relationship. You know, he doesn't say to Bright, you need to go talk to Amuro. He says, you've never really talked to Amuro about this, have you? 
And you can feel the difference. Because mm-hmm. it also means he's not provoking a confrontation between either of them and him. Right. And then to Amaro, he says, oh, don't you think it's funny? Bright thinks you're so strong. Bright thinks you're like a wild tiger. Right. He thinks you're strong, but unreliable. Isn't that weird? <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. he's going to lie here and bleed out on your, on your doorstep. <laughs> uh, so even the intermediary is very conscientious of not provoking further conflict and of coming at things sort of gently and uh, in this indirect way that allows the two people to come together again, sort of having acknowledged their mistakes, <laughs> though never explicitly to each other, right? Neither of them ever makes an apology to the other. Well, and in a way, this allows them, each one of them is doing the third party a favor. Right. They're not doing each other a favor. They're n- they're doing Ryu a favor. And that makes it okay. And allows things to kind of move on finally with the situation mostly repaired without either of them having a sense of, of shame over the outcome. In tribute to Pilot Cadet Chief Petty Officer Ryu Jose, I want to talk a little bit about the Buddhist deity known in Japan as Fudo Myo. And yes, that's going to make more sense in a minute. You see, when we were researching Japanese sword fighting for episode 1.19, Nina and I traveled to view the Arms and Armor Collection at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. While there, we visited the Japanese Art Wing. We had just watched these two episodes, so I had Ryu Jose on my mind. And then I saw it in the middle of the gallery, a statue that could have been Ryu toweringly large, physically powerful but also heavyset with a belly, broad-featured with a heavy brow, wide nose, thick lips, short curly black hair, dark skin, a warrior's fierce countenance, and yet somehow benevolent. So I looked at the plaque, Fudo, one of the Myo, or Wisdom Kings, a Buddhist protector deity associated with the Shingon sect. All right, that's probably where the similarities end. But I decided to look Fudo up anyway. First, for background, Shingon is a Japanese sect of esoteric Buddhism. Esoteric Buddhism is sometimes called Mantrayana or Tantric Buddhism, and what makes it esoteric in this context is secrecy. Only initiates into one of the valid, sacred lineages may learn secrets from their master or guru. This is distinct from so-called exoteric Buddhism, which is just like written down in books where any commoner can read it. Esoteric Buddhism is more on the mystical side and strongly rooted in ritual, while exoteric Buddhism is more philosophical. But even us non-initiates can learn a little bit about esoteric Buddhism, including about the pantheon of deities in the Shingon tradition. The most important of these are the Jusan Butsu, or the 13 Buddhas. This is a great name because only five of them are Buddhas. There are also seven Bodhisattvas and one Wisdom King. So these are the three types of deity in esoteric Buddhism. Buddha is a very flexible term, but in this case, it's fair to think of them as enlightened, benevolent, godlike beings who help devotees reach enlightenment. A bodhisattva is a being on the path toward Buddhahood who has dedicated themselves to helping all other sentient beings reach Buddhahood. The wisdom kings are a little bit different. They are fearsome guardian deities, wrathful manifestations of the Buddha tasked with protecting Buddhism. While Buddhas embody mystical or philosophical concepts like emptiness and bodhisattvas teach through instruction, wisdom kings literally scare people into being more enlightened. (laughs) And I think we can all agree that is amazing. Fudo is the most important of the Wisdom Kings, and the only one from that group who gets to be part of the Jusan Butsu. His name means immovable, and he is often depicted standing on a rock or tree stump to demonstrate his unwavering faith. He is traditionally accompanied by the eight great youths. 
Youths, in this case, being the Japanese word doji, which refers specifically to young people between 8 years and 20. And hey, 8 is actually the number of youths at the crash site mourning Ryu. And what does Fudo do? He appears ferocious and menacing, with threatening postures and faces, in order to frighten people into following the right path. He protects the unenlightened from evil, vanquishes the selfish cravings that cause suffering, and removes obstacles on the path to enlightenment. What does Ryu do in these episodes? <laughs> he threatens Amuro, Hayato, and Kai, going so far as to strike two of them, in order to get them to abandon their selfishness and become united as a team once more. He protects Sela and then Amuro at the cost of his own life, and perhaps, in the end, he removes the barriers that were keeping the crew apart. And at last, Ryu dies in fire during his suicidal crash. Uh, and Nina noted how the wreck from his plane continues burning like a funeral pyre for Ryu and Haman during the morning scene. Fudo's aerial, the halo of light that surrounds him in order to show his divinity, is traditionally fire, a cleansing fire that burns away impurities and turns anger into salvation. We went looking for boarding actions during World War II, and as you can imagine, there aren't many. Naval technology has come a long way from the days when the most reliable way to defeat an enemy ship was to nuzzle up alongside it and have a brawl on decks. Bigger guns, longer ranges, automatic weapons, and not to mention aircraft, all combined to make that sort of aggressive ship-on-ship -ship cuddling very rare. <laughs> aggressive cuddler. Ugh. When a boarding did happen, as famously in the cases of the captures of submarines U-505 by the Americans and U-559 by the British, those are the ones that helped us crack the Enigma code, it was only after surrender by an already defeated crew. But there was one case we found that went a different kind of way. So now, the story of the German tanker Altmark, the HMS Cossack, and what is said to be the last true boarding action carried out by the British Royal Navy, and may indeed have been the last boarding action to involve real actual cutlasses. It is December 1939. The war is three months old, and the German battleship Graf Spee is in the South Atlantic, near Uruguay, sinking merchant ships. She had been dispatched there two weeks before the war began, so that she would be ready to begin raiding behind enemy lines. A captain does not want to kill these civilian sailors, so he has been taking every man of them captive before sinking their ships. The British fleet has no intention of letting the Graf Spee run wild. Nine hunter-killer squadrons begin to sweep the South Atlantic. The South American cruiser squadron follows the pattern of distress calls from merchant vessels, and on December 13, three cruisers engage the mighty Graf Spee, and though badly outgunned, they manage to drive the battleship into the neutral port of Montevideo for repairs. Trapped in an increasingly hostile political situation, thanks to some very clever British diplomatic maneuvering, and believing that a vastly superior British fleet was waiting for them outside the harbor, the captain of the Graf Spee decides to scuttle her. But that was not quite the end of the story, because during her raiding, the Graf Spee put all of those hundreds of allied sailors, mostly British, aboard the tanker ship Altmark. This prison ship escaped the Graf Spee's fate and made its way north back toward Germany. February 1940, the Altmark takes refuge in neutral Norwegian waters, but it is pursued and trapped there by the British destroyer HMS Cossack. A force of Norwegian torpedo boats protects the Altmark, claiming that they have investigated the tanker and found no prisoners. A standoff ensues, but the Cossack receives orders to liberate the prisoners and fire on the Norwegians if they interfere. The Norwegians protest, but withdraw, and a party of sailors from the Cossack board the Altmark, in some cases literally leaping across open water to get aboard. Some in the German crew resist, probably the guards overseeing the prison, and there is a brief fight with guns, bayonets, axe handles swung as clubs, and allegedly one mostly ceremonial cutlass. Eight German sailors are killed, ten more are wounded, and one British sailor is seriously wounded when he is shot in the stomach. 
Once the Altmark is subdued, the boarding party opens the hatches to the hold turned prison and shouts, Are there any Englishmen here? The prisoners roar back, Yes, we're all English! <laughs> and the Cossack's captain tells them, Well, come on up then, the Navy's here! And this briefly became a rallying cry throughout Britain in those dark early days of the war. So that's a fun story in what has been a pretty sad episode. So I'm really sorry to do this, but this is Gundam we're talking about, and I want to do right by it and by the sailors in that boarding party from HMS Cossack, as well as all the soldiers and sailors in World War II. One of my main sources for this was an account of the Altmark incident provided to the BBC by the grandchild of one of the sailors from the boarding party, Stoker First Class George Ernest Jewett. At the end of the account, the author writes, I am proud of my grandfather. He was not a glory seeker. He was not brave in the hero sense. He was just an ordinary stoker and a gunner, an ordinary man of both good points and bad. But through such ordinary men and women is our freedom bought. My grandfather paid for his part. For 60 years, his nerves were bad. He would flinch at loud bangs. He had nightmares about the time a shell came through and exploded in his section, killing all around him, forcing himself to carry on supplying shells to the gun turrets about chipping ice off the deck of his ship in the freezing Arctic so it wouldn't roll over during supply convoys to Russia. My grandfather died in 2001. I think his small part in, I think his small part in history deserves to be remembered, and I hope it will be. We wanted to give Rambaral and Haman, aka Rumba y Hamon, aka Zion Dad and Zion Mom, a proper send-off. But that's not what they would have wanted. Ramba came back to Earth for the sake of Heman and his troops, so we're going to say goodbye by honoring the entire RAL team. Second Lieutenant Akus, Zaku pilot, killed in action while fighting Amaro in the gun cannon. Second Lieutenant Kozun Graham, Zaku pilot, missing, presumed killed in action while attempting to escape captivity aboard the White Base. Stetch, Zaku pilot, killed in action, incinerated by the White Base's engines. Gien, Zaku pilot, missing, presumed killed in action after Sela disabled his mobile suit. Clamp and 20 commandos, killed in action during hand-to-hand -hand fighting while attempting to seize the White Base. Possibly including Zagan, motorcycle scout, presumed killed in action. Lieutenant Tachi, Zaku pilot, killed in action by friendly fire when Amuro used his Zaku as a shield. Torgan, Misaki, Ilusin, and 13 other loyal soldiers who volunteered to join Hammond on her last mission. And it would not feel right to leave without paying tribute to the members of the White Base crew who fell defending her. While the full count is impossible to know, we counted seven of Kika's Onisan Tachi killed or wounded during the battle, including Chief Petty Officer Ryu Jose, who died valiantly defending his friends. They fought splendidly. And finally, First Lieutenant Rambaral, 35 years old because First Gundam doesn't know how age works, <laughs> son of Jimbaral, loyal soldier, betrayed by his own side, sometimes known as the Blue Giant, and the mysterious, clever, ambitious, courageous Lady Hamon. And now all of them together share the fate of soldiers. Next time on episode 1.21, The Long Shadow. Paper planes. Some form of comic relief. Breaking points. A profusion of goofs. A toy commercial. Evil uplighting. Insubordination. A beard. Captain Manuel. 
That's not how sedatives work. Battle damage. And, seriously, where is Char? Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The doms were too important to be left in the hands of an amateur like Ramba Rawl on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from our patron, Storm. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The morning music for Rambaral's squad is December Morning by Montana Skies. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thank you for disagreeing with my bad ideas. Anytime. <laughs> Sorry. What did we call this episode? The Fate of a Soldier. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's How so could you sad. forget? I okay. guess you just blocked it from your mind because yeah. it's so sad. And we need to obviously test, test, test. Yes. Testing, testing. One, two. And also tres. Four. Uno, dos, tres. Cuatro, cinco, cinco, seis. <laughs> okay, um, and let's test silence for a second. You know how much I like to tell you why you're wrong. Could you pass the water down here? So carefully. Let's not spill it on everything. No. Mirage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Ma- Magella Attack Top, which is the turret portion of a Magella Attack Tank that's been ejected and is being used as a plane. Or, in one case in this episode, as a rifle, because that's how they arm their Zaku carrying the top of the tank. Ebullient, euphoric. I like exultant. I do but... too. Those, I'm just saying those were the other words that came to mind for me. I think it's Mirai. Is it Mirai? I don't know what you're going to say. <laughs>